0: Coming up on Tech Nation, psychologist Dr. Susan David. On the faculty of Harvard Medical School, Dr. David's concept, Emotional Agility, was named Management Idea of the Year by Harvard Business Review. We'll talk about her TED Talk, The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. Then on Tech Nation Health, a topic that is top of many lists these days in the area of public health, the opioid crisis. Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft brings us up to date and gives us food for thought regarding public policy, giving the findings of a new study. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 minutes.
0: The Law and Order television series and all its many spin-offs has been airing since 1990. It's 27 years of episodes, all in rerun, might just be unparalleled. Still the older the episode the more painful it can be to watch. Painful in the sense that a detective's pager goes off in the middle of a critical scene, and the junior partner excuses himself to search for a payphone. In those days, pagers only gave you about ten digits, and by that I mean numbers, not letters. So unless you called into the number or had some numeric code already set up, well, you better find a payphone. Watching such episodes makes me feel impatient. Hey folks, let's get on with the story. And yet something else has pretty much remained the same. How the investigation gets posted up on large bulletin boards with big glossy photos, pushpins and maps, and yarn connecting people and places. You might call it the database of the investigation. Of course, this is all set up as a plot device to bring viewers quickly up to date. But I like what I see there, and recent episodes haven't changed all that much. The bulletin board is see-through acrylic plastic. The pushpins have been replaced with some kind of stick-em, and the yarn, long strips that also stick to the acrylic as well. While this is television, the human brain does like that tangible feel, being able to sense the forest by stepping back from an assemblage of trees. When I reflected on this recently, my mind immediately went to Robert Mueller and the investigation he's leading. I wonder, did they have a secure conference room somewhere? Every wall covered with glossy pictures and sticky connecting tape? A map of the world, prominently featuring the US and Russia? And where else? The Ukraine? The Canary Islands? even if there is no wall. They have to track all their data somehow, and they have to do it in a way that people can see. Think about it. We see headlines about people whose offices, homes, and electronics have been searched. We read indictments, which give simple examples of what the team possesses in far greater detail. We hear about interviews after the fact. And then there is the data all these folks have gathered under their own steam, which we can only guess at, bank records, phone records, email, databases. A really fascinating question for me is how in heaven's name does the Mueller investigation keep all its data straight? How does it see the forest for the trees? Or how does it pick out one or two trees in this seemingly limitless forest? At some time in the future, documents will be requested under the Freedom of Information Act, but that doesn't come with the investigative database. And who's in there, if only by proximity? It really doesn't pay to be Paul Manafort's pizza man. So if you've ever been a data researcher looking through a tsunami of ever-mounting data, you know that most data means nothing. Look at something. So what? Move along. But a minute later, an hour, a month, even a year, suddenly you say, wait a minute, is this new piece of data I'm looking at before or after that old piece of data? And there's the hint. It's data until in context, it suddenly becomes information. The Mueller crew must be swimming in it. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, working out how emotional agility is a core skill in parenting, in business, and in life. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft brings us up to date on the opioid crisis and the surprising results of a recent study. Psychologist Dr. Susan David's work revolves around human emotion and being agile with respect to these emotions. Since we're human, typically having two arms, two legs, two eyes, one brain, do we have
2: a finite count of how many emotions we have? There's uh, different perspectives on this. Uh, The basic view of emotions holds that they're between Seven and nine different types of emotions, but the count really depends on uh, who you speak to. Some people will say that they're very specific universal emotions that exist across cultures and that of universal causes, you know, anger might be frustration, uh, that a goal is being blocked or sadness is disappointment and loss. Um, But other theories of emotions actually hold that our emotions um, come together in response or in anticipation of very specific occurrences in our environment and that there are no basic uh, human emotions. So it's a complex question that psychologists argue about and discuss a lot. Well, there's
0: no one-to-one mapping of here's a word and here's an emotion and... Is there a physiological signature? Has science tried to measure this?
2: Well, yeah, and there are fascinating examples. For instance, Paul Ekman has done some work. Uh, He's one of the proponents of these basic universal emotions. And what he's done is he's gone into cultures where people may not have uh, come across other cultures and other languages. And he might show people, for example, a picture. It might be a woman crying. And he'll tell a story. He'll say, you know, one of the people in these various pictures has had a loss, Um, which is the picture. And what Paul Ekman finds is that there are these cross-cultural universal recognition of emotions that actually map physiologically – both to our facial expressions, particular muscles, um, but we also know to uh, different physiological aspects with, within us. Um, and so what Paul Ekman proposes is that there are these basic emotions that have uh, what we call universal causes, these causes of, of loss or grief, which is associated with sadness, or anger might be frustration that a goal is being hindered. And some cultures it might be a goal of... Equity and fairness, or for some people, it might be a different goal. But there's this universal goal.
0: It is interesting, and and it's it's related to language, and because that that's how we frequently express it to another person or write it down. It's not how we feel it. We don't feel in language, if you will, um, and yet. Uh, there's a conditional part to it that can play out. For instance, I'm thinking of the uh, – that comes out of the German word, the Schadenfreude, yes. which is experiencing joy given someone else's misfortune. Yes. And uh, it's like we don't really have that word, so we keep referring to that word.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. It is fascinating, though. There is a fair amount of research that shows that um, regardless of whether emotions are universal across cultures, that there certainly are – what are called display rules within particular cultures. And so a display rule might be the emotion that implicitly is okay or not okay within a particular culture. For instance, a lot of the messaging around boys don't cry, that is a display rule. Boys experience human emotion in the same way as girls. uh, But boys don't cry is a display rule that might come about through a particular culture that essentially says, this emotion is okay or not okay. And you actually start really interestingly seeing these kind of display rules in families as well uh, with very good intentions. We might, for instance, have a display rule that says we don't do anger here. You know, when you're angry, go to your room and come out when you've got a smile on your face or we don't do sadness Uh, when you come home from school and you feel rejected and are upset you might express that to a parent and a parent might, with very good intentions, say something like, you know, don't worry that no one would play with you. I'll play with you. Let's bake cupcakes together Um, or I'll phone the mean girl's parents and we'll make a play date and we'll organize things. And so what's really interesting is when you start moving away from simply what happens physiologically into how our culture shapes different expectations of emotions and then also how that then impacts on people's, well being, their levels of depression, anxiety, their resilience, their capacity to navigate the world. Well, it
0: doesn't surprise me that we don't have a, a word for experiencing happiness at someone else's you know, failures or misfortunes because <laughs> we're not supposed to feel that. So, why? We certainly aren't going to have a word for it. Um, but it wasn't until I viewed your TED Talk, The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. I didn't realize that we don't just have emotions, but because we grew up in families, we grew up in a society, each emotion that we can name has been further assigned a notion of it's a good emotion or a bad emotion. Happy, good, you know, jealous,
2: bad. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I I talk about this in my TED Talk, and It's really this idea that we live in a culture that essentially values and has come to value relentless positivity. You know, this idea that as long as we have a smile on our face and we get through things and we show up in a positive, happy way, that good things will come to us. And really this is a, I caught it in the talk, I say it's a tyranny. It's a tyranny of positivity and it's cruel, it's unkind, and it's ineffective. Because what it often does is it leads to situations where people with cancer are told to just be positive. And what they will often say is it stops them, this message from being able to be authentic and having real conversations uh, with the people that they love, that even in they're dying, that there is life, and that they want to be able to come to that in an authentic way. Um, When we're experiencing sadness or grief, what we land up doing is we have a culture that values positivity. And so when we feel these normal, natural emotions of sadness, of anxiety, anger, grief, what I found in my research is that about a third of us judge these emotions as being bad. And so we push them aside, and we fail to learn from them. And in failing to learn from them, we actually know that this undermines our well-being and our ability to shape our goals in effective ways. Some of these
0: emotions are tricky because they're kind of slippery. And then on top of that, we make decisions about them. I've literally had people say to me, I never get jealous. I'm never jealous. You know, it's like, yeah, but you get angry pretty quick
2: <laughs> in certain situations. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, what is that about? I'm never jealous. <laughs> well, one of the things that I talk about is this idea that we have come to this culture where there's so, so-called good emotions and bad emotions, and the good emotions are the happy, joyous ones, the bad emotions are the sadness, the anxiety, the anger. And so often with very good intentions, we do this to ourselves and we do this to others, is we'll push aside these so-called bad emotions, the the jealousy or the anger. And we do this to ourselves, and we also do it to people we love. We might inadvertently um, rush to solution or shame people for emotions that are deemed as bad. And, you know, what's really fascinating is that some of these emotions, as you say, are slippery, they are difficult, and yet what the research very clearly shows to us is that if you are more attuned to your emotions and label your emotions more accurately, it's incredibly helpful. A lot of people, for instance, will say things like, I'm stressed. You know, that's the word of the day, I'm stressed. Is stress an emotion? I'm stressed. Well, stress is often a secondary experience of an emotion, but people use it as a descriptor of how they're feeling. But when we use very broad brushstroke, black and white labels about our emotion, I'm stressed. Or sometimes we'll even use a replacement word like I'm busy or I'm tired to denote an emotion. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. So what's really fascinating is if I'm working with an executive who says to me, I'm stressed, I would say to that person, well, why don't you delegate more? Isn't that the silver bullet for stress? (laughs) But what if what's underlying the stress is I'm really upset that my team didn't come through on this project? And I feel let down, I'm disappointed, or I've got this anxious experience that actually I'm in the wrong career. Then tips on stress just don't cut it. And so there's this fabulous notion and this research into what is called emotion granularity. And it seems so subtle, but it's so powerful. It's this idea that when you take what feels like a very broad brushstroke emotion And you say to yourself, what is it that I am really experiencing here? What is it beneath the stress that is going on for me? What are two other emotions? And you label those emotions more accurately. What it does is it really helps you to understand the true cause of that emotion. And it's only when we understand the true cause that we are then able to put strategies in place that are actually tied to what the truth of the situation is for us. And so emotion granularity is associated with high levels of well-being, low levels of depression, and anxiety, but also greater levels of goal attainment. When you know why it is that you are upset about something and what that upset really is, it allows you to diagnose and then shape your solution in a more appropriate and fine-tuned way. And so it's very powerful.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Susan David, a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. Dr. David is the CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology. Her concept, Emotional Agility, was named Management Idea of the Year by the Harvard Business Review. You likely remember her book, Emotional Agility, and possibly her more recent TED Talk, The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And yet in complex situations, you might have a range of emotions. Does that mean you put together a, a set of emotion granularity
2: items? Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I do a lot of work in organizations, but I've also just been in Palo Alto uh, speaking on parenting. And again, very often we have this idea that there's black and white emotions or these very broad brushstrokes around emotions. So executives might say something like, there's change coming you either on the bus or you're off the bus. You're either with me or you're against me. And the reality is I might be an employee feeling both excited at the change and concerned about it and worried about what it might mean for my career. And so I might have a full range of complex emotions going on. And again, what we know is that when you open to the complexity of emotional experience. And when leaders are open to the complexity of emotional experience in their teams, and when parents are open to the emotional complexity in their children, that when we say it's not just a one or the other, but actually there's this complex thing that's going on here, and let's name it, what it actually does is it shapes what is called the readiness potential in our brains. It helps us to understand the situation and to put in place effective fine-tuned strategies to deal with it, which is different, not the case when a leader says you're either on the bus or off the bus, and people are like, well, as opposed to keep my job, I better be on the bus, but back behind closed doors, there's still this (laughs) water-cooler conversation going on. So what we know is that the most powerful teams are teams where the leader or the employee or the parent is open to the full range of human experience. Is able to be accurate with that and then able to use that information in a forward moving way towards solution.
0: You might find something about your company or your team or your family that if you only knew, you would go in a slightly different direction.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I can give you an example which is very personal, but when I was a child, I remember stealing from my parents. A lot of kids will take $2 or $3. And I remember taking this money from my parents. But, I mean, I was like seven years old. Extremely elaborate reason as to why I hadn't stolen the money. Actually, I said that someone had given it to me, that someone had at school come and given me this money so that I could buy food in the cafeteria. And my parents knew that I had stolen this money because they knew that there was no reason that some strange girl had come and given me money. And they took me for a, a ride. I still remember to this day they were in the front and I was in the back. And they asked me about where I got this money from. And I finally outed myself and started crying. And what was really fascinating is that for many parents, the reaction would be one of yelling or punishment or shaming of the child. And I still remember because it was so powerful that my parents try to understand what it was that was in a nuanced, complex way going on for me. And you spoke about jealousy earlier. I was feeling jealous and I was feeling excluded that there were these girls who I was not a part of their group and they were sitting in the cafeteria and I was bringing my own lunch and sitting separately. And so really being able to unpick a little bit of what was going on for me helped my parents to understand that I was feeling excluded and helped us to come up with a solution that, for me, didn't involve petty theft. <laughs> yeah. It's a very powerful thing in in South Africa, where I grew up. There's this beautiful phrase "sawubona," and "sawubona" means hello. You hear it on the streets every day: "sawubona, Yebo, sawubona." But "sawubona," literally translated, means "I see you," and by seeing you, I bring you into being. And really a core part of what i talk about in my work on emotional agility is that when we show up to ourselves and to others in the full range of their emotional experience and really try to understand what's going on for them that that allows us to be whole and healthy it supports our well-being and it also supports our capacity whether it's in an organization or in a family to understand the causes and consequences of emotion, and to shape ourselves in effective ways. I'm very fascinated
0: in this concept of emotion granularity. And anecdotally, from my own personal experience, I always know when I've hit it. (laughs) It's like I, I sort of have another emotion. That's it. Is there any science that we know of that tells us how we know when we've recognized our emotions? Or is that like a whole other step at this point?
2: It's a whole other step, but there is research looking at uh, different ways that we can come to know our emotions in this more accurate way. Because it seems really subtle, and I already mentioned that it's very powerful, but how do we actually do it? So often when we are, what I describe in emotional agility, we are hooked by an emotion We're almost surrounded by that emotion, and it's often difficult in that surrounded state where we're immersed in the emotion to start really understanding what it is that's uh, going on for us. And so just to define what I mean by hooked, Viktor Frankl, who survived the Nazi death camps, described this incredibly powerful idea between stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space is our power to choose. And in that choice lies our growth and freedom. And that effectively is the idea of emotional agility, that we can come to our emotional world with courage, curiosity, and compassion, and yet still make choices that are values aligned. Now, often what happens is we don't do that. Often what happens is we get hooked and we become emotionally rigid. There's no space between stimulus and response. So for instance, I'm feeling undermined in this meeting. I'm just going to shut down. My partner's starting in on the finances. I'm just going to leave the room because I feel uncomfortable. I'm stressed, so I'm just going to yell at my child. Or even from a child's perspective, uh, Jack didn't invite me to his birthday party. I'm not going to invite him to mine. What we're doing here is we are treating our emotions and our thoughts as fact rather than as data that are useful but are not necessarily directions <laughs> that we have to act on. And so often what happens is there's no space between stimulus and response. And in order to live intentional values-aligned lives in which we make effective choices about our health and our parenting and who we want to be in our careers, we need to create the space. And so what I talk about in emotional agility is this first aspect, which is this subbornness showing up to emotions – but then I talk about a number of strategies that allow us to get to greater levels of emotion granularity. And I can talk through a couple if that would be helpful. The first is what I've described a little already, which is when we feel an emotion, often there's secondary emotions. So we might say something like, I'm stressed or I'm angry. And it's kind of instructive to say something like, well, what are two other emotions beneath that? What else might be going on here? So that's just a very, very simple overarching strategy. Another way that we can start uh, doing this creation of space between stimulus and response, which is really what I call stepping out. It's the ability to feel an emotion but also to be able to observe it. And we've all had this experience. You might phone a customer service agent and be so outraged because they've got your telephone bill wrong yet again. And you finally, on your 333rd call, get hold of a human being and decide you're going to give that person a piece of your mind about your phone bill. And you might be feeling anger. And then there's that little voice that goes off inside your head that says, if you just tell this person how you feel... They'll conveniently lose your file. And so what you're going to do is you're going to be angry, but you also are able to observe that anger and decide what's effective at this moment. And so we all have this skill, but it's a skill that is worth cultivating. It's called a meta emotion perspective. It's the ability to both feel an emotion, feel angry, feel unloved, and know in your heart that the person really does love you. And it's a critical skill. It's the cornerstone to our ability to move on from depression, for instance. If you think about depression, it's often the experience of this emotion is here, it's here to stay. I can't observe it, it's around me, it's everything. It's also the cornerstone to empathy. So when you hear yourself saying something like, I am sad or I am angry, What you're really doing is you're saying, I am, all of me, 100% of me is sad. Whereas you are not your sadness. You are experiencing sadness, but you and your sadness are not one and the same thing. So instead of saying something like, I am sad, I am angry, instead try to label the thought or the feeling for what it is. It's a thought or a feeling, not a fact, not a direction. So something like, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing that I'm feeling angry. I'm noticing the thought that I'm being undermined here. This is a very subtle linguistic strategy that allows us to create space between stimulus and response in a very powerful way. Knowing what your emotion is accurately and being able to step out of it and to understand what the emotion is telling you, but also to make values aligned choices becomes critical. You know, I'm knowing that I am stressed is not the same as actually what's going on here is I am disappointed. And what I need to do in this situation, because collaboration is really important for me, is to bring some of my team members on board. I'm speaking with
0: Dr. Susan David, the author of Emotional Agility, named Management Idea of the Year by the Harvard Business Review. We'll talk more after a break. of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the opioid crisis and the surprising results of a new study. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Susan David, a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. We've been talking about her TED Talk, "The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage." We've all been in difficult business meetings, in which you're like, "Golly, these people are undermining me," and if you say you're under, first of all, you you've got a big flag saying you're not supposed to say that. But if you get past that and you say, well, you're undermining me, it it totally devolves down. But to be able to say, you know, I'm noticing that I'm getting feelings of being... Undermined, you know, and it's like lets the other crowd go. Oh, we would never undermine you. <laughs> you know? Oh, 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 you're getting feelings. Oh, uh, about what? 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 You know. Like, so it there it, it it allows a dance to go on yeah. without the accusation and the self defense. You yeah, know?
2: You, you're creating. You know, you're creating space here. You're creating space uh, for yourself, but you're also creating space for your team. And it's really fascinating. One of the things that I write about a lot in emotional agility is this idea that human beings become very hooked on the idea of being right we become very rigid in the idea of being right i'm the only one you know i'm the only one that's right and it's really fascinating you know wars are made and broken um lives are lost on this being hooked on being right and we've all had that experience of being in an argument with a spouse or a loved one and finally calm descends at night and you turn out the lights and then something compels you one last time to switch them on again and tell the person why you are right and they are wrong. And then chaos breaks out again. Human beings have this very strong desire to be right. And I see this often when uh, when I'm interviewed for newspapers and especially for business journals. They'll say things to me like, but what if you are right? What if your team member really is a slacker? What if your boss truly is a fraud, okay, what should you do? When you are deciding whether to say or not say something in a particular situation based on being right, that's very often the wrong question to be asking. The question that's often a more effective question is, does what I need to do, or does this answer, this response, does it serve me? Is it serving my career? Is it serving the kind of leader that I want to be? Is it serving the kind of person that I want to be? You still get to choose how you want to be in that situation. And so the litmus of emotional agility, the litmus of effectiveness is the ability to ask yourself what response in this situation will bring me longer term to being the person, the leader, or having the career that I most want to have.
0: What you were saying also reminded me that these are times of, as you say in the TED Talk, unprecedented technological, political, and economic change, and that we see people's tendency sort of locked down into rigid responses. Uh, Can you give us an example of what that might be like so that when we're looking at responses around and we're seeing it, we go like, oh, wait a minute. This is a rigid response. This
2: is not a granular or accurate response. Yes, absolutely. So what's fascinating in every workplace that I've come across of late is that every single workplace is basically saying, you know, we are experiencing unprecedented change, uh, unprecedented levels of stress. And we need people to be. And then there's a laundry list of things that we need people to be. We need people to be collaborative. We need people to be innovative. We need people to be relational, to be caring. We need to move away from silos and we need people to understand the interdependence of what they're doing and how that might impact on other aspects of the business. So there's all this stuff that we need in context of complexity. Now there's this Absolutely critical paradox that is fairly frightening, and it's this that the same complexity that drives these needs for the business also undermines it. Because when people are experiencing complexity and stress, they are much more likely to do the opposite. Instead of being collaborative, human beings become more tribal, us and them. Instead of being relational, we become more transactional. I know my staff member's got a sick child, but I've got 400 emails to answer and I just can't even get there. We become much more us and them. So we put things in categories and so we're not actually considering interdependencies. And so what's really fascinating is every single organization is saying, oh, we need to be agile and we need to be adaptive. But fundamentally, there is no agility in an organization without Human agility without emotional agility. Because I've never met a leader who says, I don't want to be inclusive. I've never met a leader who says, I don't care about my colleagues. But I have met leaders who are feeling angry, stressed, undermined, and therefore exclude or show non caring behaviors. And so, what are the signposts that we are looking for? We're looking for, uh, you know, very black and white thinking where you're starting to be focused on us and them right or wrong that's a sign that you being rigid another sign that you being rigid is where you are going over and over and over in your mind conversations that you should be having wish you'd have had want to have and almost playing these out what this is a sign of is that you are in a brooding state around your emotions. I talk about bottling and brooding. And brooding is where you get so focused on what it is that you're feeling, but you're struggling to move to the stage of, what do I need to do in a values-based way about the situation? All of these are signs that you're stuck inside your head rather than living your leadership or living your life in a way that is effective. You keep saying value align. You're looking
0: for actions that are in alignment with your values. So critical. And I think that many of us have problems with, what our values are supposed to be. Values were things that our family told us, perhaps our church told us, perhaps our society told us. This is a place that, that we can get
2: stuck. How do you figure out what your values are? Absolutely. In emotional agility, I talk about the showing up to emotions, the stepping out, and then this third aspect, which is what I call walking your why, which is coming into connection with the heartbeat of yourself who it is that you are what it is that you care about and this idea of values can often feel really cheesy you know it's this idea that is uh, we have values on the walls of businesses and values can seem very abstract but actually the way that i think of values is that values are qualities of action every single day you get to make moves that are either towards your values or away from your values. And I'll give you a very specific, very simple example. If you value health or wellness for yourself, you go down to the cafeteria and you either making a choice that is in the direction of your values, the fruit, or away from the direction, the muffin. And (laughs) there is this everyday (laughs) choice point that we have around our values moving towards or moving away. And so this idea that values are abstract is um, more of a kind of management idea. What we know when we look at the psychological research is that values as being qualities of action are fundamentally protective. They are critical for us as human beings because we all get subject to what is called social contagion where we compare ourselves to others, we're on social media, we find 10-year-olds... Selling businesses for $20 million, um, we're comparing, there's all of this toxic comparison that is going on, and then you in a workplace where everyone else is stressed, and before we know it, we can often look around and go, how did i get here <laughs> you know how did i get here where i've been doing this thing for 10 years that i don't even believe in and so actually spending some time to think about what our values are is known in multiple studies to protect us from social contagion and i'll give some examples later of some of this research but you ask the question how do we start thinking about values the first thing that i would say is that often we do have values that we have almost absorbed because we have been told by our families that these are our values. And sometimes they will be. But what's really important to recognize is that life changes, we change, and the height of adaptability is recognizing that you are not the same person that you were when you were five years old, and that your values may have evolved over time and there is – such an enormous amount of power and freedom instead of being judgy about that to recognize that and to name it your values are your values so that's the first thing a second thing that I often come across with values is people say things like my values are in conflict I value being a parent and being present with my children but I also value my career my values are in conflict usually Values are not in conflict. Our values are our values. And in the same way as you might have a diamond where you've got the front facet of the diamond facing front and center, but it doesn't mean that the rest of the diamond isn't there. We can at particular times in our lives, when we're writing a book, for instance, when I was doing it, or when we've got a very important project at work, or there might be times where some values face us more front and center It doesn't mean the other values aren't there. And there's a certain freedom that comes with that knowledge. So what is in conflict? What's often in conflict is not our values but our goals. I want to be at my child's recital. And I also want to be at this very important business meeting. And they happen to be at the same time. And the difficulty that comes with that is, of course, we are mortal and we cannot be, (laughs) you know, we're mortal and we're not omnipresent. And so we can't be in two places at once. So what starts to happen is when we have our values front of mind, we are able to make choices. But instead of those choices being just off the cuff choices or choices that feel like I've got no choice in this choice, we're able to make a decision about what is this value, yes, I value my children, but I also value being able to feed them and house them and therefore I value my job, we start being able to make choices about what goal we want to focus on at this particular time and how that goal might be concordant with our values. Now, this is not meaning that you're never going to have conflict, but what it does is it frees you to be able to be very powerful about the goal that you choose to pursue at a particular time. With the knowledge of why you are doing it, and it's done in an intentional way rather than just feeling pressured back or backed into a corner. Back, back and forth back and forth. Yeah. Yes, I see. And you mentioned research. Yes, yeah, so there's this fascinating research. Uh, we often think of, for instance, there's a lot of discussion about implicit biases, okay? Uh, The idea being that there are these implicit biases about gender, demographic, uh, ethnicity, and so on. And these implicit biases get evoked against us. They're biases that other people hold that get invoked against us. Actually, what we know is that we can hold biases against ourselves. So there are stories that we may have about who we are, what we're good at, what we deserve in life. Whether we're good at math, whether we should have this career or shouldn't have this career. And some of these stories are stories that we climbed into in grade three. You know, they were written on our mental chalkboards in grade three and have now become a prison around our lives. And so what often happens is in times of stress, these implicit biases start to be activated. And we start to say, oh, you know, they were right, I don't deserve this career, or they were right, I'm not cut out for this. So what's really fascinating is take this example. Imagine you are an individual who's grown up in a community where no one in your community goes to college. And so every single piece of messaging that you have had is, we don't do college, we don't go to college, that's not who we are. But you study and you get through school and you finally make it into college. Now, At some point, you fail a test because at some point, everyone fails. What we know from the research is at that time, your likelihood of dropping out of college increases significantly. There's something like a 70% likelihood that you will drop out of college at that time. What is happening is that this bias that exists in your society, in your culture, has started to be activated against yourself in times of stress. Okay, so this is the social contagion implicit bias. Then you say, how can we protect people from this? Those individuals who are at the beginning of their college year asked to spend 10 minutes writing down why are they at college, why is studying important to them, who do they want to be, why are they doing this course. In other words, they're doing what is called a values affirmation exercise. Those 10 minutes of writing are shown to protect individuals from dropping out of that college degree two and three years down the line. So in some, in very practical terms, what we know is that starting exercise of understanding what your values are What is important to you? And you don't need to make a big deal about it. It doesn't need to be a complex exercise. It might even be, you know, the way that I'm parenting is much more from the yelling and stress, whereas actually what I want to be as a parent is much more present. It doesn't need to be complex. But what we know is that having your values front of mind in an articulated way to yourself is protective of these implicit biases and of social contagion. Susan, this is fantastic. We didn't even get to the Emotional
0: Agility Quiz, which is out on your website. It's yes. been taken by well over yes. 70,000 people. We didn't get to a whole lot of stuff, but that's
2: perfectly all right because I'm I'm just hoping you'll come back and see us another time. I will. And if people want to find out about the quiz, it's on Susandavid.com forward slash learn. We've had 100,000 people take it now, and it gives you a free 10-page report about your emotional agility. And there's the TED Talk. there many ways for people to connect in with us if it's of interest. Well, thank you
0: again. My guest today is Dr. Susan David. Her book is Emotional Agility. Her TED Talk is The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And the Emotional Agility Quiz can be found on com slash learn. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Top of mind these days in the field of public health is the opioid crisis. I asked Tech Nation Health chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft to bring us up to date.
3: Well, it's a huge crisis on both the economic, financial suffering realm. We're now in an era where it's our leading cause of death for those under 50 years of age. There are 64,000 opiate overdose deaths in 2016 alone, and that's climbing. So there have been more folks who died from the sort of in this realm of the epi- epidemic than, uh, than we had casualties and deaths in the Vietnam War. So it's, it's hugely impactful, including on our average life expectancy, which has now dropped for two years in a row in the United States. So huge implications uh, and, and something we need to really think about across the whole spectrum from policy and regulatory to social, to drugs, to devices, to apps, and, and new ways to uh, approach it if we're going to help make a dent.
0: Now, how did normal everyday people suddenly become addicted to opiates?
3: I think it's complicated. Um, there's all the elements from the sort of social morass. We have Significant parts of the economy and country where folks expected to have their factory jobs for life have lost them. There's almost a disease of despair, which can hook folks into the opiate crisis. We have folks who are getting uh, addicted through um, the normal sort of – had a medical issue, broke a leg, needed a, an orthopedic procedure. Um, we started to pay much more attention in healthcare care to, to pain, calling it the fifth vital sign and starting to measure outcomes. Are you controlling the pain? And that would often lead, well-meaning clinicians – Myself included, to like, oh, you, you want to prescribe a little more pain med than, than you think might be necessary to make sure the patient's comfortable. Recently, my wife had a pretty small foot orthopedic surgery, and she was prescribed opiates. And believe me, that was super important. That first night, she needed to double up. She was at 10 out of 10 pain. She actually was a little late on a dose. So you have to really be mindful uh, to give it to one when, when it's appropriate. But what often happens is we're finding that clinicians, well-meaningly, will prescribe too many pills Or too long of a duration, and that helps folks who would normally not get sort of hooked have an opportunity to. Or those pills are in the extra bottle and the the kids steal them or they become traded on the street. So it's a complicated issue. On the big data side, we're seeing some of the big insurance companies uh, and and, and researchers. Optum Labs, for example, did a study on prescribing patterns and found that in many cases, about almost 80% of the prescriptions were prescribing too many pills um, or for too long. And that would lead to a higher risk of uh, of addiction and abuse. So we can look at that and then use the policies when you're prescribing to then readjust that prescription down. So that's a simple, relatively public policy and procedural thing that can happen across pharmacies and play a role.
0: So in the presence of pain, it's not addictive. It's once the pain goes away, then the addiction begins?
3: I think it's it's a blend. There are folks who are more predisposed to addiction, some folks who – may have addictive personalities and even genetics. There are even startups and companies and labs studying the genetics of the opiate receptor, for example. There's a gene called the RGMA gene, which seems to potentially play a role in who's like more likely to become addicted or tolerant or need to continue taking uh, pain meds. I think it's super important from the clinical side to recognize that there are many indications for taking pain medications and opiates are the most powerful but we need to be mindful about how we dose that where we dose that how we counsel folks instead of just giving them a piece of paper saying take a pill every couple hours maybe there's an app that goes with it maybe there's actually medical devices that can help dispense that pill and only that one pill when you need it and help you with the tapering Um, there can be uh, new ways to understand folks personality and use other tools one of the technologies we have discussed on the show in the past is virtual reality Uh, And a classic issue that requires a lot of pain medications is burn injuries. So in the hospital setting or outside, folks are often getting what are called wound debridements. After their stage three burn, they're getting a lot of painful procedures. Um, Several groups have now uh, used approaches with virtual reality. One is called Snow World, where the patient will literally put on a VR headset, be in a cold environment, and be throwing snowballs at penguins. And when they do this these patients are needing less than half the amount of, of pain medication. So that's an interesting way, sometimes blended. A
0: biofeedback kind of a loop.
3: Right, and, and there are biofeedback and even hypnosis programs that have been used for folks who often have chronic pain. So there's a, often a difference between the acute pain you'll have after a burn injury or after a fracture or after a surgery and sort of the chronic pain. Some folks get, let's say, with phantom limb pain after they've lost a limb or have had some other injury that gives them pain even after the, the pain stimulus is long gone.
0: I don't care who you are, if you've ever had either an acute pain or a chronic pain, people say, oh, how bad could it be? You know it. You know you have pain. And yet, still, in a hospital setting or a healthcare setting, they'll like hold up little cards with from a happy face to a sad face, one to 10. And there's no painometer that says how much pain is a person in.
3: That's a great point. There's no great biomarker like a lab test for pain. Some folks have been, trying to develop these technologies, like ascribing that to the sound of very harsh nail scratching on the blackboard, (laughs) and you can kind of give folks a way of quantifying it more than that 1 to 10 scale. But we all, many of us have different pain tolerances. Many of it depends on where our minds are focused. If you're very focused on your pain, you're going to get that pain. That's why technologies like virtual reality and and other mindfulness techniques can help. There have even, even been folks that have put patients inside fMRI machines to look at the sort of chronic pain center in their brains, a colleague of mine, Christopher DeCharms, did this work at a company called Omneron, and they could allow people to watch in sort of a feedback loop, af- a flame that was indicative of how active their chronic pain center was, and they would learn to modify that down. So even when they got out of the fMRI machine, they could sort of learn to optimize through the sort of biofeedback that they had in the fMRI to reduce their chronic pain. So that's another potential approach. And if we could amplify that and bring that out of the MRI machine, uh, that could potentially be democratized. So... We need to have better forms of understanding who's at risk of abuse if they're just getting treated for an acute pain injury. We need to understand the ways of smartly tapering and prescribing these men so they're not becoming left on the shelf and and used in in abusive ways by folks who never had a pain injury. Uh, We need to think about the policy and public elements and education side uh, as well as how we can use technologies, everything from a smart app to remind you to take your medicine on time and to taper it, uh, as well as new tools from VR to electroceuticals, uh, a wearable device that can stimulate the nerves to reduce the pain pathways. Uh, all those in combination can be helpful at approaching this really terrible epidemic.
0: And yes, you liberal arts majors, you did hear a new word, appify, A-P-P-I-F-Y, a verb uh, being an engineer, I'm getting to the end of my little little liberal arts speech here, even though I went to a liberal arts college. Um, appify, it means to?
3: Well, take something that used to be done on paper. Um, you leave the emergency room or the hospital or the doctor's office. You get a pamphlet on how to lose weight or how to take your medications. It may be a Xerox that's several years old. And the idea of appifying, there's an app for that, means you could condense that into a user interface that fits on your phone. That might be personalized, that coordinates with your calendar and your schedule or enables you to press a button to rate your pain or to track any number of data sources. It might be from your wearable device to track your sleep or your steps. So when we appify something, we can take something that used to be analog and digitize it and make that mobile and now fit in our pocket or in our smartwatch. And that has huge implications from managing pain all the way to uh, managing blood pressure or treating diseases like hypertension or heart disease.
0: And extra points for you. You already used it in a sentence.
3: <laughs> there you go. I wonder if it's in the Merriam-Webster dictionary yet.
0: Uh, it, well, we'll watch for that. Could be word of the year. You never know. They always have a new word of the year.
3: And there are apps for new words as well.
0: Oh, this we're going down a rabbit hole here. There's one more uh, serious question I want to ask you, and that is that the degree of pain... Uh, is sometimes related to other pain that you are experiencing. And I'm I'm actually referring here to some conversations I've had with people working in the area of military PTSD. They actually, their systems are already on high alert. There may be some referential situations that they get triggered by any amount of pain. Is this just all pain?
3: I think they're, again, different forms. There's psychic pain, emotional pain, and then the, the physical pain from a a wound that happens in the setting of a trauma in a in a military field and we're learning that there may be sort of neurologic pathways sort of that inflammatory response after a, a an event which might trigger PTSD in one person, if you maybe give them rest or uh, a Valium and have them take a nap uh, versus keep them in the environment, that may sort of reduce their risk of long-term PTSD. We're learning that our social constructs uh, around us, supporting folks when they come back from, let's say, military theater can in impact their risk of PTSD and their ability to recover. And even taking a, a page from more of the psychedelic world, approaches using psilocybin, magic mushroom, or drugs like MDMA are now going through the FDA pathway to treat things like chronic pain, depression, and PTSD. So new ways of rewiring our brands after a traumatic event, whether that's psychic or a combination of pain, uh, physical pain, I think can be impactful. And in states that have legalized medical marijuana, we're seeing a significant decrease in the use of opiates. Actually, 40 less prescriptions per 1,000 individuals in states that have legalized marijuana and a 25% reduction in deaths from opiate-related overdoses. So the use of other modalities, in this case uh, marijuana, can reduce the need and demand for opiates, both as an actual treatment for pain or as a drug of abuse.
0: Well, there's something to think about. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Mark. Dr. Daniel Kraft is Chief Correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the Founder and Chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn.